We want to uh, consider some things that God might want to speak to our hearts about today. And let me encourage you to get your Bible uh, and find the book of 1 Timothy near the end of the New Testament. And in a few minutes, I'll be reading from the sixth chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 6. And uh, I think you'll find it important to read along with me when we get there. Well, I'm just wondering uh, how you survived if you, in fact, participated in Black Friday. Uh, some of you don't look too beat up. I didn't see black eyes and bruises and, you know, arms and slings and all that kind of thing. But um, I, I did uh, the whole Black Friday thing one time several years ago and said, I'll never do that again. Because I got there early and I was uh, there as the doors opened and uh, not realizing there was like a couple of hundred people that had lined up behind me. And I thought I was going to be trampled. Uh, because I didn't move fast enough. I didn't realize everybody was going to run when the doors opened. I was walking like, you know, cool adult that I am. So anyway, I about got trampled and decided I wouldn't do that anymore. But it uh, looks like you might have survived that. You know, the mantra uh, for that Friday is uh, shop till you drop or I'm going to get a steal of a deal, you know, those kinds of things. Um, and as they tell us, uh, it makes up about that one day makes up about six percent of the holiday retail uh, income during during the season, which, of course, is huge to the American economy. The American economy is a consumer economy. It is dependent upon us consuming on spending, on buying, on acquiring. And because of that. There are some of the brightest minds in the world that work on Madison Avenue and in other places marketing and telling us how badly we need all this stuff. And, of course, there's nothing wrong with stuff. There's nothing wrong with money. And that's what we're talking about today. How is it that Christians enjoy money and stuff, money and possessions? There's nothing wrong with those things. However, they do hold great potential. To harm us. Money and possessions hold potential to harm our relationship with God, to harm our relationship with one another. And so it's something that we have to be careful about. It's something that we have to be wise about. It's something that God has said a lot about. And we're going to begin to look at some of that in the scriptures. And so if you have that uh, passage found in First Timothy, I'm going to encourage you to read along with me. Here the Apostle Paul is giving an important word of instruction beginning in verse 17. He said, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth. Now, let me pause there because probably everybody in the room, when Paul said, command those who are rich, disqualified themselves and said, oh, okay, he's talking about somebody else. And we've done this many times in here. Uh, we're some of the richest people in the world. Okay, so if you were to put everything on a global scale, uh, we're way at the top. So he's talking to you. He's talking to me. And he says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds. To be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. 
so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So here Paul gives this kind of double admonition. One, don't put your hope in money. Do put your hope in God. But in both instances, the question before us is hope for what? What is it that someone would put hope in money for or, in contrast, put hope in God for? And near the end of the passage, he says, for true life, for enjoyment. We could even use the word happiness. See, God uh, is the one who thought up enjoyment, who thought up happiness, who thought up the good life. And it's his heart toward you, toward us, that we have an enjoyable, happy, good life. And so if that's the case, and he invites us to hope in him, to trust in him for that, and he warns us about hoping in money or something else instead of him, then I think we have to conclude, this is a pretty big deal. The Bible has a lot of scriptures that are assigned to this topic because God sees it for the big deal that it is. So we're just going to talk about it for a few minutes. And uh, then we're going to uh, respond in ways that God may be inviting us to respond and we'll be through. So let me, let me say to you this way. When I began to hope in something or in God, I began to commit my life in that direction. Life commitment is huge. It is everything. And let me tell you what I mean by that. The power of your commitments actually show your values. It reveals what is important to you. Somebody says, well, I really value family. But with their commitment of time and effort and energy and the giving of themselves, it all goes to work or it all goes to some other kind of activity and family gets the leftovers, well, they've shown what their real value is. It's not family. It's something else. How do you know? Because your commitments have revealed what your values are. You say, well, I really value health. But you don't do anything about diet. And you don't do anything about exercise. And then you, you really don't value health very much. Because the way you commit the use of your time and the use of your resources reveal your values. Secondly... Your commitments shape your life. You are the sum total of your commitments. And so if you make a, a strong, hearty commitment to make a lot of money or to climb a ladder in your corporation or to be socially popular or to uh, engage in recreational activities so that you have a certain level of fitness and so on like that, those decisions and those commitments shape your life. On the other hand, if you make a commitment to God, 
I want to follow God. I want to know God. I want to become like God in my character and in my heart, in the way that I deal with life and deal with people. That will shape your life and it will determine your destiny. Now, we talked about this last week. You get 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years. Who knows how long you get? God knows. And then after you die, most of life happens because you enter eternity. You leave this little sphere called time and you move into eternity, which goes on and on and on forever and ever and ever. And as we discussed last week, if you have made life commitments to God, your hope is in God. He is the one that is infusing you with his life. Then you spend forever with him. If you choose to do life without God, if you choose other paths, if you choose my way or whatever, then for all eternity, you're separated from God. This is the power of commitment. It shows you what you really value. It shapes your life. It determines your destiny. There is a huge price that goes with commitment. It calls for you to come forth with the things that are of value to you. Now, there are some things that we would commit ourselves to that take lesser cost from us. And then there are some things that we would commit to that take a greater cost. If you choose to commit yourself to God and to follow after his will and after his way in your life, the cost is very high. You go, well, I thought salvation was free. It is. He freely gives it to you. But for you to receive it, for you to appropriate it, for you to live it, takes everything there is within you to receive his gift. Jesus said it this way, if you want to be my follower, you must love me more than your own father, your mother, your wife, your children, your brothers, your sister. Yes, more than your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. Luke 14:26. Now that is an extremely high cost. That's like everything that makes up who you are. He says, I, I want that from you. I want to be first in your life. And you go, well, how in the world can God demand that of me? How can he ask for so much? Well, first of all, because he created you. Second of all, because he made a purpose for your life. And loves you enough that he created you and designed you for a certain purpose. And third, because he died for you. When your life became broken and busted and needed a savior because of sin, he said, okay, I'll be that savior. And he paid the atoning price for your life. No one else in history, no, no one else has the capacity to create you, to design a perfect purpose for your life, and then to die for you so that you can be atoned for and have everything that was destined for you. That's why he has the right and the power and the ability to demand such a cost. 
But we don't tend to think about life and God in such all-inclusive ways. We tend to think about life like a pie. Right? And so I've got a slice that is my family. I've got a slice that is my work. I've got a slice that is my uh, recreation. A slice that's my social life. Uh, You know what? I should probably have a slice for Jesus. And so we have all these little slices that we think make up our life. And Jesus is a slice. And what the scriptures tell us, what the verse we just read tells us, is that Jesus won't be a slice. He won't be a part of your life. He wants to be your life. He wants to be first and foremost what your life is about. He wants to be the whole pie with you. Now, to this kind of thinking, author C.S. Lewis said, if Christianity is untrue, then it's unimportant. The converse is also profound. If Christianity is true, then it's all important. So I'm going to ask you to just pause and think about that for a moment. Is Christianity true? Some of you have been through some rather rigorous investigation of that question, and you've come out with a conclusion that says, yes, it's true. Well, then, friend, if it is true, then it is all important. If it's not true, it doesn't make that much difference. In fact, there are a lot of other things to do on Sunday morning. What are we doing here? But if it is true, what implication and what impact does that have upon the totality of my life? Lewis went on to say, the only thing Christianity cannot be is moderately important. It cannot be kind of important to you. It's all important. Someone has said it this way. If Jesus is not Lord of all your life, he's not Lord at all in your life. And so the question before us today is this. What place does does God have in your life? Is he first and foremost? Does he have your first affections, your first attention, the the first desires of your heart, your first allegiance? Above everything, everyone else. So I'm not even sure how to go about that. Well, let me just make some brief practical suggestions. If I'm going to live in such a way with commitments that have God first in my life, then I want to give Christ the first thoughts of each day. That's a starting place. Give him the first thoughts of each day. You go, oh, Scott, you're going to tell me again that i got to get up at 4 a.m. and read the Bible and journal and pray and all this kind of stuff. No, that's not what I'm talking about. I, I affirm that. I think that's great. 
knock it down to six or something. You know, you know. But more than that, I'm just talking about before you take your head off the pillow, before you put a foot down on the floor off of your bed, that you begin to give thought to Jesus. You go, Scott, you don't know how foggy I am in the morning. I, I, I don't give thought to anything. Yeah, you do. It's amazing how much you're giving thought to. And one of the ways that you shape the thoughts of what happened first thing in the morning is by determining the thoughts that are the last thing before you go to bed the the evening before. Now, I know you've had this happen to you. The evening before, some stupid song got in your head, right? (laughs) Then you slept eight hours, and when you awakened, that song was going in your head, and you're like, I don't want to hear that song. That stupid song. The same kind of thing happens for us if we determine that our last thoughts will be about Jesus, be about God, be about who he is and what he's like and what he's up to. Now, that can happen with a brief reading before I go to bed. That can happen with a brief prayer before I go to bed. That can happen with the reflecting on a worship kind of song that's not stupid. Before I go to bed and when I wake up, those are the kinds of things that begin to come forth. And I certainly want to do that before I turn on Bad Morning America (laughs) or uh, the Today and Too Late show or something like that. Uh, And you start hearing about all the disasters and all the things that are horrible and all the things that are wrong, etc. I'm not saying that we put our head in the sand like an ostrich and pretend like all's right with the world, but that we don't inundate ourselves with that right out of the gate. We Focus our thoughts. Open our heart in connection with God. Psalm 5, verse 3. Each morning I will look to you in heaven and lay my request before you. Secondly, I would say, give Christ the first day of every week. And, of course, that's Sunday. And the implication of that is that we would prioritize Meeting with Christ and with the people of Christ in worship, in adoration, in obedience, in submission, in joy. Now, um, as you're aware, Jesus, when he died, was buried and resurrected. He resurrected on Sunday, the first day of the week. And so every Sunday for a Christian is like an Easter Sunday. Every Sunday we celebrate his resurrection. Every Sunday we acknowledge the price that he's paid for our lives. We confess the love that he has for us and our response to that. And what's more, uh, because he reigns and he rules, we have declared the first day to be the Lord's day. And so for those purposes uh, and, and for those reasons, Sunday has become that huge of a day for us. But here's something else we want to keep in mind. In the Bible, a day doesn't go sunrise to sunrise. In the Bible, a day goes sunset to sunset. That's why it says there was evening and there was morning and it was the first day, etc., etc., 
And so when we start thinking about giving Jesus the first day of every week, that really needs to begin on Saturday evening. So that on Saturday evening, we begin to anticipate Sunday morning. We began to think about the opportunity we're going to have to gather and to worship. We began to ready our heart to be with God in that kind of extra special way. We get to be with Him every day of the week in an individual kind of way. But on Sunday, it's an extra special kind of way because we get to do so together. And so I began to get ready for that the night before. Now, honestly, friends, right? We've all been there. A lot of us, even after we've walked through the door and we've taken our seat, we're still not ready. Jerry's taken us through three songs and it's been 15, 20 minutes in the service. We're still not ready. Because there's so much stuff that has been bombarding us through all the week. I'm not saying that we set all that stuff aside. I'm saying that we have so centered ourselves in Christ beginning last night that he begins to take all that stuff and sort it, make sense of it, put it in its proper perspective. Acts 20, verse 7, on the first day of the week, the disciples came together. Then the third suggestion I'll make is that I would give Christ the first 10% of every paycheck. The Bible has a word for that called tithe. And it is a means by which I value God. As we've said a hundred million times in here, He doesn't need our money. He's not... Greedy for our money, we need to give him our money as a way of keeping our heart centered on him and the things of life in proper perspective. Proverbs 3 9 says it this way Honor the Lord by giving him the first part of all your income. So before I pay my bills, before I meet the obligations to other people, I want to honor God with the first part of my income in an act of. Of worship. Deuteronomy 14.23 says, The purpose of tithing is to teach us to put God first in every area of our lives. That's the whole deal there. Is the training it does of me to practice that. In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul said, Bring that on the first day of the week into the house of God. Why? Because it's also an act of worship. It's not some kind of robotic obedience step. It's also an act of worship where we're declaring what we value most. And then it's Him. And then in the fourth place, I would say, give Christ the first consideration in every decision. The first consideration in every decision. You're making a decision about whom you're going to date, whom you're going to marry, when you will have children, where you will live, what kind of work you will do. Man, don't make a plan and then say, oh, 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 yeah, God, would you bless that? First, consider him and begin to discern plans and direction out of your relationship with him. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says it this way. In everything, underscore, circle, highlight, in everything you do, put God first. And He will direct you. 
and he will crown your efforts with success. And of course, every time we talk about success, we have to get at that with a biblical definition, not what a, a worldly definition of what success looks like. So I'm going to commit my finances to God. Knowing that he will properly guide me in the use of and the disbursement of finances, ultimately in ways that will bring enjoyment and happiness and a full experience of life. And so I'm going to trust him about my finances. And the scripture promises that he will make me a success about that. Now, that doesn't mean he'll make me a success by turning all of my investments into big winners and I'll become wealthy. Rather, a success is someone that has not been possessed by their possessions, not been owned by their money, not been fretful and controlled and worrisome and all that kind of stuff about monetary things. That's success. But he says, also commit to me your work, commit to me your family, commit to me the challenges of your parenting, commit to me these other kinds of relationships. And I will be at work in ways that it, it serves to bless. Now, let me mention a couple of things that will trip you up along the way. A couple of pitfalls. And this first thing I want to suggest to you, friends, I think is epidemic in the church. This church and almost every other church I know about. And that is distraction. One of the things that will hinder and trip you up in properly prioritizing God and having Him as the first and best commitment of your life is distraction. And these distractions are around us all the time and they're increasingly becoming more powerful. Mark chapter 4 verse 19 says, The attractions of this world, the delights of wealth, the search for success, and lure of nice things come in and crowd out God. Now, I've already said to you, there's nothing wrong, per se, innately, with the attractive things of this world. There's nothing wrong with wealth. There's nothing wrong with success. There's nothing wrong with nice things. We just have to be very, very, very careful about those things because they can become too important. They can matter too much. They can begin to seize our heart and our attention and distract us from the proper place that God deserves and demands to have in our lives. Now, I battle distraction. You battle distraction. It's common to all of us. What are we going to do about that? Well, I've asked Ryan to come and share a brief word with us because uh, as much as anybody else, he is in a demanding job and he has uh, a marriage that he needs to give attention to and he has a number of friendships and relationships. And, you know, how do you keep God-centric in such a distracting time? Share a little bit with us about how God's at work with you about that. Actually, can I borrow your stool? You might. Something to take my words here. Thanks. Anybody else find it ironic that Scott asked me to interrupt his sermon to talk about distractions? <laughs> um, 
if, if we're seeking to give away our life, then I think that a distraction is anything that keeps us from giving something to God. It's something that makes us think about ourselves, put ourselves first. Um, and when I think about it, I think of two types of distractions. I think there are two categories. The first one are those things that we're intentionally keeping away from God. So they're the things that we're too ashamed to give away to him. The things that we're doing in our life that we don't want him to be a part of. We don't want to share with them. And, of course, the joke there is that he knows anyway, but we convince ourselves that he doesn't. And the second type are those things that we don't think that God cares about, that aren't important to God. They're things that happen in our life, and he doesn't really, you know, it's not critical to him. And so we take those on ourselves to deal with. And it's that second one that I struggle with. Um, in our wonderful Christian Life Profile Assessment, um, one of the characteristics is single-mindedness. And so the key verse that goes with that is from Matthew 6.33, and it says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And one of the assessment statements for it is, I see every aspect of my life and work as service to God. Huh. The trick there is that I didn't. I didn't see that. It was easy for me with my marriage to see how the relationship that Aubrey and I have can be a witness to other people. And so I commit that to God and I pray about it. And when things aren't going well, we take that to God and we figure out what to do next. And when we're working up something like the youth lessons, it's easy for me to see how that can have an eternal impact. Right? Because hopefully it does. And so we take that to God and we pray about it. And we try and seek his will in it. But tomorrow morning I'm going to go to work. And I'm going to get there and I'm going to sit down at my computer and I'm going to review someone's code and I'm going to write some of my own. And if I write fantastic quality code, does that do anything to further the kingdom of God? So I convinced myself that it didn't. Um, a few weeks ago, I got a call from one of my coworkers and said, Ryan, you need to come see an email. And so I went over to his office and uh, he showed me an email that was sent by one of our other coworkers to our senior management. And I wasn't on it. And it basically implicated me and my team um, for doing a lot of stuff that we had. Some really, really nasty, evil stuff that we didn't do. And I knew I was getting mad because I could feel this kind of rise of hatred going through my body. And the weird thing about me, it always happens on the left side of my face. The left side of my face gets really, really hot and turns bright red. And so for those of you who work in my building, if you ever see me walking down the hall with half of my face red, stop me. But anyway, I got mad. And so the first thing that you do when you get mad is you throw all logic out the window and you think to yourself, I'm going to go deal with this. So I went storming down the hallway, and I got about halfway up the stairs and realized that this was not going to end well. I was not thinking straight. I was working entirely off of emotion. And, and oh my goodness, I need, to, I need God in this situation. And so I went and found a deserted stairwell, and I sat down, and I started praying. And I got this feeling that I needed to open my Bible at work, where I have no Bible. And so I pulled out my notebook, my laptop, and uh, I went to BibleGateway.com, which is a great site. I thought, okay, I need to find a verse. And I'm sitting here staring at this page with a search box. I'm like, okay, well, what verse do I look up? And so I hit their verse of the day. Come on. So you had this really disturbed, mad, not thinking straight Ryan. And God pointed me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. And it starts with, therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. <laughs> nice one, God. And it occurred to me in that moment that what was happening in that situation didn't matter. It was like Scott talked about last week. It was a point. It was a point in time. And the way that that thing resolved itself didn't matter. But the way that I acted in that situation had eternal consequences. 
Because had I walked into her office and been unreasonable Ryan and gone crazy, she would have had a negative opinion of me. And so would anybody else who heard the story. And that would have reflected poorly on Meadowbrook, which would have reflected poorly on the Christian faith, which would have reflected poorly in her assessment of the Christian faith, which would have mattered for eternity. And so I was thinking about my career and what is my career. How do I see my career? Well, I work in the tech industry. That's great. How does God see my career? Well, Ryan, you work in an industry that is heavily, heavily, heavily unchurched, that is hostile towards the faith. And so the problem there is I was thinking about my career in terms of what am I trying to get out of this? And God was saying, what am I trying to get out of this? What are you doing for me? So when I think about distractions, the big thing that I have to fight with isn't how do I get these things out of my life? It's how do I put God in them and make that part of my life? And I'm not great at that yet. I'm still working on it. Um, Like I said, if anybody sees me with half of a red face, do something. But I find that the more that I trust God and the more that I take things to him, the more that he blesses me with moments like in that stairwell where the verse of the day on Bible Gateway happened to be Second Corinthians, which happened to speak perfectly into my heart. Um, and that's the glorious thing about our Father. Thank you. Well, I mentioned that there were two pitfalls. One is complacency. I mean, one is distraction. The other is complacency. When we talk about complacency, we're talking about getting to a place where we think, well, I had this important experience with God back when, or I served God in an extraordinary way back when. Um, I have certainly been committed to him in a very thorough, exemplary way back when. And uh, we don't stay current in the dynamic of all that God is up to with us today. We live on past experiences with God rather than what's current and fresh. Romans 12:11 says don't be lazy in showing your devotion. Use your energy to serve the Lord. Complacency. What's God doing in you now? How are you responding to him now? Say what you did for him a year ago, six months ago, five years ago. That was great then. What's going on with you and God now? There's a huge payoff when we prioritize God, when he's first in our lives. When we put our hope in Him for the enjoyment of life. When our money and our possessions are something that come under His rule and and leadership in our lives. There's a huge payoff to that. This isn't just a mind-numbing, painful, grueling, dutiful, Okay, God, I'll do whatever you want me to do. And I know it will be a sorry experience in the process. No, it is a great blessing. And um, Ryan just alluded to this verse a moment ago when our Lord said, don't worry. Saying, what shall we eat or drink or wear? Your heavenly Father knows that you need these. But seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. 
In other words, in the short term, I don't have to worry. God has said, you follow me. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to provide for you. Now, follow him means I'm becoming who he's leading me to become and I'm doing what he's directing me to do, etc. It's not this passive couch potato thing. Okay, God, just take care of me. But it's in the course of my doing life with him that he will be at work with all the stuff that goes on around me and in me. And he'll be doing so in a provisional way. He'll be providing for me. And so in the short term, one of the great blessings is I don't have to worry. He's a good, capable, giving God who is inclined to bless and to provide. But in Matthew 25, verse 33, Jesus also said that there will be a day that the master will say, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. And that's more of the long-term provision and blessing. There will be a day when we will be affirmed. When all that we have been about, when all that we have become, when all that we have done in the name of Jesus will be acknowledged. And there will be reward as a part of that. There will be promotion, if you will. I've given you a few things that you were very faithful about. And now in the kingdom to come, I'm going to give you many things. Now, we were talking about rewards last week. And uh, a few of you had comments for me as you were leaving and later in the week that, you know, that was just brand new thinking for you. you. You didn't think about there being levels of experience in heaven and rewards that have to do with what you did in time and here and now. But this is just one of many verses that make reference to what happens on the other side of death, the life that goes on forever and eternity. And that there is great celebration to come as God has been prioritized and placed first in your life. There are short-term and long-term blessings that come our way because of God being who God needs to be in our lives. Dwight L. Moody, uh, a rather famous preacher of a, a long time ago, who uh, spoke all over this country and all over Europe, often quoted Henry Varley, who said, The world has yet to see what God can do in and through and for the person who is totally committed to Christ. The world hasn't seen that yet. What would that look like for these coming weeks? To be the weeks where you best knew God, did life with God, walked daily with God, and served God. What would that look like? How would it be different three months from now? Because you got undistracted and you no longer fell to complacency and you began to prioritize God as He deserves and demands.
2 Chronicles 16.9 says, The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. I mean, just allow that picture to sink in for a moment. That God is, is just scanning the globe, looking for every heart that's fully committed to Him to see how He can add to that, bless that, empower that, grace that. It's not a matter of me... Oh, where am I going to find God's strength for this next challenge? When my heart is fully His, He's looking for me. He is initiating with me to bring the grace, to bring the power, to bring the wisdom that I need for whatever I'm dealing with. Romans 6.13, give yourselves completely to God. Every part of you. You want to be tools in the hands of God to be used for His good purposes. So, how do you respond to that? Well, I made four suggestions. Would you be willing to give him the first thoughts of every day? To give him the first day of every week? To give him the first 10% of every paycheck? To give him the first consideration of every decision? I'm going to leave some prayer. God's been speaking to you about that. If you're at a point of moving to some fresh commitment, some fresh expression to God, then maybe right now you would want to say to one of those four points or some point I haven't even made, yes, God, I'll be obedient to you in that kind of way. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for my brothers, my sisters, my friends that are in this room and that are listening to this later. I pray that your spirit has made it clear an area, a step that you're inviting them to right now of greater and fresh commitment. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you love us so much that you would be this involved in our lives. We thank you and we make these decisions in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.